Are beavers really worth a damn? These furry agents of change create and maintain essential wetlands. No one's going to argue that they improve their environment for the better, but I'm starting to think that they change the lives of the people who work with them as well. Let me show you what I mean. So I'm on the line now with Suzanne Foudy, who's a hydrologist with the Forest Service, and I just thought you could talk a little bit about your experience and um, how you came uh, to think about this in your in in your training. Um, Heidi, it's a real pleasure. Um, yeah, I've had a chance through research, my job opportunities, um, and just my own personal interest to really have a chance to explore this issue, and have really come to realize just the potential restoration capability of having beaver with respect to public lands. Uh-huh. And I guess for me, public lands uh, is a real passion of mine. We have large areas in the West in areas that are extremely dry. Uh-huh. And one of the things that's really missing is water. And there is nothing more magical than being in a dry landscape and coming across a beaver pond. Uh-huh. It it just sort of transforms the way you, how everything feels. I mean, there's just a sense of vibrancy in life. And one of my earliest experiences was in the Gila River. Mm. And I was down helping an environmental group. I was collecting some data. And in one of the streams we were looking about at, there was this huge beaver dam lodge. There was no water in the creek, and there were no beaver. But they had been digging down into the water table, which was very near to the surface, to try to stay cool. Mm. And I remember feeling really sad. And, but I, that was it. I mean, I didn't really understand about, wow. I just thought, wow, this is pretty amazing. This is really different. And we walked downstream farther um, as part of our survey, mm-hmm. and we actually came to a spring, and mm-hmm. Beaver had actually built a dam downstream mm-hmm. of the spring. And so suddenly there was this enormous pond mm-hmm. of water in a place that otherwise had almost nothing. Wow. And so it was really an interesting experience for me. And then when we went to another place in the Gila um, where we were also collecting data, there were these odd mounds on the valley floor, and then there were these sort of depressions, and some of these depressions had held water. And I actually took pictures of them. And I was like, wow, this is really weird. Mm. But I did not make any kind of a connection at that point in time. Mm. Um, But when I finally made the connection, um, when I was doing work in uh, Montana, and I had a chance to to see the beaver dams, and you know, initially I thought, oh my gosh, these beaver dams have just totally screwed up my nice little tidy study of no cows, no elk in this part of the stream, no cows, but elk can get in in this part of the stream, and cows and elk can be anywhere they want along the stream. I had an opportunity to go to Idaho shortly after I had written off this beaver dam section of stream and um, visit with some ranchers. And the woman took me to their cabin mm. that on a September morning, and it was there was this buck and pole fence this, oh. that um, kept uh, that had been built around had been built to keep cows and elk out. And just imagine this like perfect fall day. It's early in the morning, and I look inside this exclosure, this fence, and there's this steam rising off this big, beautiful pond with all this incredible vegetation. Mm. And I I look down to where I'm standing, which is outside the fence, and the grass is about an inch tall. Mm. It's completely grazed. Mm. 
The stream banks are vertical and they're raw. There's no vegetation on them. And there's this little tiny trickle of water that's coming down, which is seeping through the dams and feeding the stream. And because I had just come off of my time in on Price Creek in Montana, right. and I saw this, I think I was just primed. And it was mm-hmm. it was this interesting sort of shift of going, looking at it and then looking at the stream again. The streams that I had always thought, that's how streams look. Yeah. And then going, looking back in again, and then thinking back to that stretch of Price Creek in Montana and the Centennials, uh-huh. and suddenly going, oh my, uh-huh. this, is what it's supposed to look like. Everything I have ever known about health, what a healthy riparian stream is supposed to look like, I'm wrong. Mm. And I have to credit a woman by the name of Susan Shock. When I was down in the Gila River and we were helping her um, on a grazing lawsuit, and this is just, you know, I'm, I'm a volunteer. This is before I even go back to graduate school. And it's a beautiful fall day. You know, it's the best time to do field work. And there's this gorgeous cottonwood that has just gone gold. Mm-hmm. And the Gila River is well, it's the east fork of the Gila. The water's pretty shallow, so it's it's pretty warm. And beautiful blue sky, these gorgeous rocks. And I'm walking down, and I'm like going, wow, this is amazing. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Huh. And she turns around, and she says to me, it is not beautiful. Huh. You have just so internalized this system, systems like this as is, is normal, that you can't even see the fact that this system is totally and completely sick. Wow. And I was like... Okay. What what should it look like? Well, it should look like places with beaver dams. The uh-huh. Gila River had beaver. I mean, you read the early trapping journals, and they do an intensive trap right. in the Gila River. Yeah. So this narrow, the stream that had this big cottonwood on the valley floor and these incised banks and these big gravel bars, that's not what streams are supposed to look like. Uh-huh. Streams are supposed to look with abundant water, and if you if you don't have beavers. They should be narrow in these meadows and winding, and they should have all kinds of vegetation in them. Uh-huh. So it was. I think it was just a combination of things. I had been spending the last two summers intensively measuring streams, and so it was kind of one of those aha moments. Yeah. And, of course, the next season I went back, the next summer I went back, and I proceeded to put in... Um, I monumented some sites where I could go back and do repeated surveys. And in between 94 and 95, which I didn't know, a trapper had come in and taken the beaver out of Price Creek in Montana. Huh. So over the course of the next couple of years, I went back and I would resurvey my, my monitoring sites. And I was able to capture the failure of the dams. Uh-huh. And just you can see how the water levels drop. The sediment just vanishes. Uh-huh. And... By 98, uh, most of the dams had broken. And in some cases, they were just completely gone. Mm -hmm. And all the sediment that had been trapped there, all the high water tables had completely reverted to the old thing. Wow. So it was just, it's been a really incredible, and so in the process of doing that and deciding to go back and get a PhD, Mm -hmm. um, I had the good fortune of meeting, hearing about uh, Bruce Smith, who was a, a fisheries biologist for the Salmon National Forest, and he had this fabulous book, this is so this is 94 hmm. and i go to him and i say i've i've been directed to him and i go to him and i say bruce you know i know this is a lot to ask and you don't really know who i am but i'm wondering if i could borrow your your book of references uh-huh. and reluctantly but with an incredible amount of generosity he said yes 
And I said, I promise I will get these back to you right away. So that was so, so I, I didn't have to start from scratch. I had this right. wonderful source material to do. I had this wonderful individual who I could sort of run things by. And, and once you start to see it, mm. it's like you see it everywhere. There's signs of it everywhere. Mm. And you start reading old trappers journals or old, um, the old land survey, mm-hmm. uh, reports and you start to see what the landscape looked like. Mm. So it, it's, it's been a real journey. And so I, you know, in the job I currently have now, I deal with a lot of streams and a lot of streams that have been altered by past grazing and mining and logging and road building and, you know, farming and urbanization. And all of those streams look like the streams I saw in the Gila. They're wide, they're right. straight, they're incised. They don't have a lot of vegetation on the stream banks, mm-hmm. a lot of gravel bars, a lot of things eroding. And not all these streams, because some streams are just too steep, but there are places where it's perfect beaver habitat. And mm. And so we, you know, I'm I'm looking at, you know, trying to sort of facilitate that process and as are a number of other people throughout the country. But how do we get the habitat back so that we mm-hmm. can get the beaver back in there? Mm-hmm. And what's involved in getting the habitat back? You know, it depends on where you are. So where I live right now in northeast Oregon and where I've done most of my research, which has always been in sort of arid and semi-arid landscapes, so the Intermountain West. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about, first of all, reducing the amount of browse pressure on those that riparian vegetation, those, those cottonwoods, willows, aspen, red, red osier dogwood. Right. So it's the elk and the deer and the cattle come down, and you know they and they proceed to you know nip off those shoots. Uh-huh. When beaver come in, they take the larger pieces. Right. And when you when the beaver cut that, you get this incredible flush, uh-huh. and you have all this new delicious growth. At which point, the elk, the deer, and the livestock move in. Uh-huh. And so you don't have, your food source becomes very limited. Right. And, and part of what we have in the West is a legacy of massive changes. So while livestock grazing management practices have improved, the challenge is, is that they've improved, but the landscape that they're operating on is still really, really damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, we have elk numbers where I am and in a number of places that are increasing in the absence of predators like the wolf. Right. And so even if you don't have livestock, what you have is the elk mm-hmm. and the deer, and they come down and they heavily browse all of that woody vegetation. Mm-hmm. And so you, even if beaver come in and there's a little bit and they make themselves a dam, if if they take the bigger stuff to make the dam and then the willows and the cottonwoods and aspens sort of send out new shoots and the elk and the deer and the livestock come and take those, pretty soon there's nothing left. Right. So so keeping that browse pressure off those that, that woody vegetation is really critical for beaver. I mean, they'll build with sagebrush. They'll build dams out of cattails. They'll build dams with just about anything. <laughs> but success, long-term success, Right. requires not only building material, yeah. but it requires food, and it requires building material that can withstand, like, the, the spring flows. Yeah. So you have to get the browse pressure off. And in the case of public lands, in terms of livestock grazing, it becomes a matter of how we manage livestock on public lands. Uh-huh. And that is a decision that public land management agencies have 100% control over. Wow. When it comes to elk and deer, it's trickier. 
Uh-huh. Um, there's talk about, well, the hunters can do it. But the truth is, is that hunters can't be everywhere. We wouldn't, no hunter would want to be in a landscape that had so many people they couldn't, every place they turned there was a person. Right. And you have lots and lots of streams that will never see a hunter. Uh-huh. And what you need is another species that sort of keeps the elk moving and the deer moving and not hanging out in this, along the streams, browsing every new shoot that comes up. Uh-huh. And depending on the system, it could be cougars uh-huh. or in many cases, such as Yellowstone, um, what we've seen is with the return of the wolf, huge changes in how elk are moving. Elk probably changes in numbers. And, and we're seeing willows and cottonwoods and aspen show up that haven't shown up in decades. Uh-huh. And so that's a piece that really has to happen. And so you've got land management agencies managing livestock and, and needing to make some mer- major changes. And then you've got this wild browser, mm-hmm. these wild browsers, you know, and there's a different strategy that has to happen. But without that pressure coming off, it, it's really hard to get the riparian vegetation to take off. Yeah. Um, you can fence. Right. And if you have areas that are locally intensively hunted, you may be able to, you may see that as well. But not on the landscape scale that's required mm-hmm. to actually begin to store water on public lands for use for people and wildlife and fish downstream. You have a background in hydrology, right? Right. So thinking about these um, large predators and their roles, how does it all fit together? I think for me it's, you know, it's like when you start dealing with the natural world, Uh they are forever, it's like reading a book that has all these incredible chapters, only nobody ever, there's no way to skip to the end. Uh Um, And so, you know, for me a long time, for a long time, I was like, wow, beaver, that's it. That is how it's done. And then you start to hear about the work that comes out in Yellowstone. And you're also out in the field and you're noticing it's like everywhere I look, the aspen are two feet tall and there isn't a cow in sight. Uh-huh. Um, or you go into places and um, you a lot of places, you know, in the West, you've got a mix of livestock and, and wild browsers. But So it's the combination of the two and you're like, okay, it's not going to be enough right. to – just manage livestock. And then, you know, initially think, okay, well, you know, we'll fence. We'll just do massive fencing. And then you're like, okay, great. What are the economic costs of fencing? Mm -hmm. What are the ecological costs of fencing? I mean, wildlife get caught up in it all the time. Mm -hmm. And and then, again, you know, so you're sort of looking and then the stuff starts to come out of Yellowstone and it's one of those pieces that just sort of clicks. You're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Wolves were here. Bears, cougars, they were here. And that they had a role to play uh-huh. in managing how other wildlife used the landscape. Okay. And without them, we could take all the cows off of public lands. Huh. And we would see a, definitely we would see a change. And every place where you have fenced cows out, there is a noticeable change in the riparian zone. And streams start to narrow and vegetation starts to come back. But that next step of getting beaver to build their dams and really raise those water tables, if you've got elk in the area, they will just take over the role of what livestock do in the riparian areas. And that's the story of Yellowstone. And that's the story of some of the other national parks that folks like Bob Bestia and Bill Ripple out of Oregon State University have shown. It's that, yeah, it doesn't have to be cows. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. a browser. Whatever that browser is, if it likes the riparian woody vegetation, 
it's going to be a problem. And I think that's an important thing, and it's an important thing from my own understanding is that it's easy sometimes to either say it's only the elk or it's only the livestock and right. to realize it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. So that's where, so for me, that the whole issue of the wolf has been this whole other chapter in how do we restore our systems mm-hmm. and understanding that, okay, now, you know, we can kind of come to terms with beavers. They're kind of warm and fuzzy. You know, wolves are mad, um, you know, majestic, but yeah. wolves come with a, a different set of complications. Yeah. You know, they're really hard to live with. They, if you have public lands grazing and you've been used to turning your livestock out, all of a sudden you can't do it the same way. If you're mm-hmm. used to feeding your cows in the morning on your private land, that may not be the best idea in wolf territory. It may make a lot more yeah. sense to feed your cows at dusk so they all cluster together just like wildlife does at night. Uh-huh. And then they've got more protection. It means changes. Right. And change is hard. It's hard for all of us. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have the wolf come back, then we will continue to see our streams degrade. Um, did I understand you right? Or did you say that you only saw one beaver? I've only seen one beaver in the wild. Wow. Well, when you did, what what surprised you? What? What, uh, and why have you only seen one? Where well, are all the others hiding? Because, I don't know, well, you know, I'm out during the day. Right. And so the one beaver I saw was at dusk. And it <laughs> was in the Gila, and I was in its pond. And, and because it was a small pond, <clears throat> he probably didn't have a lot, or she didn't have a lot of places to go. Right, didn't have a lot of options. Um, and I think for me, because this is 93 before I really understand the, the significance of beaver. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just sort of feeling sad because there's beavers trying to survive and they build this beautiful lodge and the river's dry because mm-hmm. of what's going on at that time in terms of grazing. Right. I think I just felt like I had been given some extraordinary gift. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I have to invite you to come for a vacation in Martinez and we'll take you down and show you our beavers and you get to see Lots of activity. I would love that. And maybe even hear them, which is such a treat. When you think about someone else kind of trying to make a difference in the fields you work in, what kind of background would you recommend for them to have? Who would you tell them to talk to? You know, I I don't think anybody has to have any particular background. I think all they have to do is love the world. I think that's all you have to do, and and want to be part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. And as I have had a chance to listen to your various podcasts, and and had a chance to hear everybody's, including your background. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are coming to it from all kinds of different directions, and everybody's life experiences, everybody's jobs, gives them a set of skills. And if you want, if someone wants to be part of this. It's about, you know, getting informed, seeing what you can do, um, and that at some point in time you will find your place where your skills and your passion really come together. Uh. So I I think that the only thing besides loving the planet and wanting to be part of the healing and really wanting to leave a legacy of a a water-abundant and ecologically complex and stable ecosystem um, is a sense of wonder. And realizing that whatever part of the story we understand now, there's mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of chapters we haven't even learned about yet. Huh. And that we have to stay really open. And that the river and the beaver and the wolves and the wildlife and all those things are going to be teaching us stuff 
and we just have to be willing to listen. Wow. Wow, that, that, that's a really nice summary. What, what about what you do do you not like? I mean, you're pretty positive. Is there any part that you are not happy about? You know, I think, the, I think the hardest part for me is that there are two things. One, it's this idea of time scale of change. Mm-hmm. And in all the research that I've both personally done and in the research that I've read, um, to go from a really water-scarce, ecologically simple, um, relatively barren landscape to a water-rich, ecologically complex and diverse uh, landscape takes place in less than 20 years if you, one, improve the habitat, mm. beaver come back in, they don't get trapped out, and as people, we anticipate any problems and, we, and we, we're prepared. So here we've got something that we can take the, this dry intermountain west landscape and we can transform it mm-hmm. on, a, on a massive landscape scale in less than 20 years. Within five years, people would be like, wow, who would have ever thought there were willows here? Mm-hmm. And yet we don't. And I think for me that's one of the hardest parts. You know, public land management agencies are supposed to be managing resources for this current and future generations. Mm-hmm. And to not be aggressively going out and making whatever changes are necessary in order to get those streams functioning is a really frustrating thing. And it, and it feels like a real betrayal of the public trust. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece is that we can, in our lifetime, within a matter of years, we get to see a change. And, and I guess I wanted to ask, you know, on your creek, how long did it take before you started to see changes once beaver showed up? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a great question. We definitely saw differences in six or seven months. But, I mean, we were we, – people really started to believe that those differences existed when the mink came, which was about two years after the, the beavers built their dam. So that was really a sign of the mink coming to eat the fish, the fish really improving in the area, and um, and that that all happening because of the beaver dams. Right, and so, so there's this huge cascade effect that took place. Right. And I guess I'm just a little curious. Why did the beaver show up, and why was there habitat? Huh. Well, you, honestly, in our city, they had just done this massive flood pro- project and put in a ton of concrete. And as a, um, a compensation for all the concrete they put in, they had to put this little wild area to make up for it. And the little wild area was so nice that beavers moved in. So it was a compliment, really, to the work they did, but the city didn't take it as a compliment. So I'm assuming you had to deal with some problems and and getting pretty proactive. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that really was. It really took a lot to um, to do very little. You know, and I just wanted to, if I could, just give you the other part that's really frustrating. Okay. <laughs> and, and I, and I want to do this because I think this is an important thing as we move forward trying to resolve this issue. And that is, there, public land management agencies are told they're to manage habitat the landscape, uh-huh. you know, water resources, things like that. State fish and game agencies, they, they manage fish and game and wildlife, uh-huh. fish and wildlife. And the problem is, as you can have just demonstrated in your little story and shows up over and over again, including places like Yellowstone, is that habitat and wildlife are really tightly linked. Uh-huh. And that 
habitat allows wildlife to come in, which therefore increases the quality of habitat, which is allows other wildlife and fish to come in, which further increases habitat. And, and so this division, which ends up being it's very artificial, uh-huh. ends up with neither group ever being really able to fulfill their mandate. Right. Because in order for public lands to be able to provide water, favor high-quality water, deal with climate change, the habitat has to improve, but in order to do that, we need beaver and wolves, as well as changes in livestock management. Mm. But the state game and fish are who control, like beaver trapping, whether it's allowed or not, you know, wolves. And, and so you end up with this very sort of artificial thing that you get into the strange round robin sometimes between these agencies. It's like, well, if you would only do this, then that's the reason why it's not working and everything would be fine. And the other agency says, no, if you'd only do this, then this uh-huh. is what would happen. And the problem is, <clears throat> it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Actually, yeah. it's the chicken and the egg because the <laughs> truth is they're really linked. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the other piece. And and what it all boils down to for me is the, probably the hardest part and the part that makes me ache sometimes when I'm in the field is that when you love something, whether it's the future, your kids, the planet, mm. migratory birds who are desperate for a wetland to rest in, when you love them, it is really easy to give something. Mm. So one of the hardest parts is to be out there and seeing that the stream temperatures are 80 degrees and that fish are struggling to survive mm. and not be able to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And to feel that somehow we as human beings have gotten so wrapped up in how much can we have that we have forgotten to ask the question of how much can we give. doesn't mean we don't get anything, just but how much can we give? How much can we share with this incredible place that provides us with so many, they call it ecosystem services, but it's everything, the air, the food, the water, and what it would feel like. And what it must have felt like for you guys in your town and creek to understand that the fish came back, yeah. the mink came back, because the beaver had come back. Yeah. And, and what kind of a gift that was to the world. And what an act of love and compassion without ever really realizing it. And it becomes really easy to share. Mm. Uh, it is kind of dazzling to talk to you, and I really appreciate so much um, the work that you've done and continue to do, and um, really being able to have you to speak to us on Agents of Change. So thank you, Suzanne, so very much. Heidi, it's been my pleasure. Change, 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 change.